Hello, I'm Byron Reese. I'm the host of Voices in AI. If you're interested in the topics we discuss in these podcasts, I'd urge you to check out my newest book. It's called The Fourth Age. It's about conscious computers and artificial intelligence and the future of work and jobs and all of the topics we cover here on Voices in AI. It comes out uh, next spring, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon or wherever else you order books from. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today I'm excited. Our guest is Hugo Lovershell. He is a research scientist over at Google Brain. That would be enough to say about him to start with, but there's a whole lot more we can go into. He's an associate professor on leave presently. He's an expert on machine learning and he specializes in deep neural, network, neural networks in the areas of computer vision and natural language processing. Welcome to the show, Hugo. Hi, thanks for having me. So, um, I'm gonna only ask you one kind of lead-in question and let's just dive in. Would you give sure. people a real quick overview of kind of a hierarchical explanation of the various terms that I just used in there in terms of what is machine learning and then what, how, what are neural nets specifically as a subset of that and what is deep learning relationship to that? Can you just kind of like put all that into perspective for the listener? Uh, sure. Yeah, let, let me try that. So uh, machine learning is the field in computer science and, and in AI where we are interested in designing algorithms or procedures that allow machines to learn. And this is motivated by the fact that we would like machines to be able to accumulate knowledge uh, in an automatic way, as opposed to another approach, which is to just hand code knowledge into a machine. And so that's machine learning, and there are a variety of different approaches for allowing for a machine to learn about the world and learn about achieving certain tasks. And within machine learning, there's one approach that is based on artificial neural networks. So that approach is more closely inspired from uh, our brains, from, from real neural networks and real neurons. Um, it, it's still somewhat vaguely inspired by in the sense that many of these algorithms, you know, probably uh, aren't close to what real biological neurons are doing. But some of the inspiration from it, I guess, is, a lot of people in machine learning and specifically in deep learning have this hunch that, or this perspective that the brain is really a biological machine and it is executing some procedure and some algorithm and would like to discover what this algorithm is. And, and so we're trying to you know, take inspiration from what the way that brain functions in designing our own artificial neural networks, uh, but also taking into account you know, how machines work and how they're different from, from biological neurons. And so there's the fundamental unit of computation in artificial neural networks, which is this artificial neuron. So you can think, for instance, that we have neurons that are connected to our retina. Um, and so on the machine, we would have a neuron that would be connected to uh, and take as input the pixel values of some image on a computer. And in artificial neural networks, for the longest of time, we would have such neural networks with uh, mostly a single, you can think of a single layer of these neurons. So multiple neurons trying to detect different patterns in say images. And that was kind of the most sophisticated type of artificial 
neural networks that we could really train uh, with success, say 10 years ago or, or more, uh, with some exceptions. But in the past 10 years or so, there's been developments in designing learning algorithms that leverage so-called deep neural networks that have many more of these layers of neurons. Uh, much like in our brain, we have a variety of brain regions that are connected with one another. How the light, say, flows in our uh, visual cortex, it flows from the retina to various regions in the visual cortex. And uh, yeah, so in the past 10 years, there's been a lot of success in designing more and more successful learning algorithms that are based on these artificial neural networks with many layers of artificial neurons. And that's been something I've been doing research on for, for the past 10 years now. So, you know, you, you just touched on something interesting, which is this parallel between biology and and human intelligence. The human genome is uh, like 725 megabytes, but so much of it we share with like plants and, and other other life on this planet. Mm -hmm. If you look at the part that's uniquely human, it's probably 10 meg or something. Does that imply to you that you can actually create an AGI, an artificial general intelligence, with as little as 10 meg of code, if we just knew what that 10 meg would look like. Or, or more precisely, with 10 meg of code, could you create something that could in turn learn to become an AGI? So, um, I, perhaps we can make that parallel. I'm, uh, I'm not so much an expert in biology to be able to, to make a specific statement like that, but um, I guess in the way I approach research, beyond you know, just looking at the fact that we are intelligent beings and we have, and you know, our intelligence essentially from our brain, uh, beyond just then taking act of that fact and then trying to see some, taking some inspiration from the brain, I mostly drive, you know, my research on designing learning algorithms from more from math or statistics or trying to think about what might be a reasonable approach for this or that problem and how could I potentially implement it with something that looks like an artificial neural networks. Uh, but I, I'm sure some people have a better informed opinion as to like, to what extent we can draw direct like inspiration from, from biology. But um, beyond just the very high level inspiration that I just described, what motivates my work and my approach, I guess, to research is a bit more, uh, taking, you know, inspiration from, from math and statistics. Do you begin with a definition of what, what you think intelligence is? And if so, what, what do you, how do you de define intelligence? Yeah, I, 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 it, that's a very good question. So I, there are two schools of thoughts, at least in terms of thinking of, of what we want to achieve. There's one which is we want to somehow reach something that's, you know, the closest thing to perfect rationality. And there's another one which is to just, achieve an intelligence that's comparable to that of a uh, human being uh, in the sense that, you know, as humans, perhaps we wouldn't, wouldn't really draw a difference between uh, a computer or another person, say, in, in talking with that person or in, in looking at its ability to achieve a specific task. Um, I, um, I guess a lot, of, a lot of machine learning really is based on imitating humans in the sense that we collect data uh, this data, if it's labeled, it's usually produced by another person uh, or many, a committee of person, like, a, a, you know, crowd workers. Um, and so um, I guess, I, I think those 
two definitions aren't incompatible. Uh, and I guess the best, you know, it seems the common denominator is essentially um, a form of a form of computation that isn't otherwise easily encoded just by writing code yourself. Um, at the same time, what's kind of interesting and, and perhaps evidence that this, this notion of intelligence is kind of uh, elusive is there's this well-known phenomenon that we call the AI effect, which is the fact that it seems very often whenever we reach a new level of, of, of AI achievement, of, of AI performance uh, for a given task, it doesn't take a whole lot of time before we start saying that this actually wasn't AI, but this other new problem that we, you know, are now interested in is actually AI. So, so chess is a little bit like that. Uh, I think for a long time, you know, people would associate chess as chess playing as a form of intelligence. But once we sort of figured out that we can be pretty good uh, by treating as uh, essentially a, a, a tree search procedure, uh, then for a lot of people, it started thinking. Some people would start saying, "Well, that's not really AI. AI is, is much, you know, is, is is actually there's now this new separation where uh, chess playing is sort of not AI anymore somehow. Um, so it's it's uh, it's a very tough th thing to pin down. Uh, currently, I would say a lot of you know, whenever I'm thinking of AI tasks, a lot of it is essentially matching you know human performance on on some particular task. Such as um, the human, uh, the Turing test. Do you think that th it's yeah. much derided, of course? But do you think there's any value in it as a benchmark of any kind, or is it is it just a glorified party trick when we finally do it? And and to your point, that's not really intelligence either. Uh, so no, I think there's value to that in the sense, uh, at the very least, if we defy a specific Turing test that for which we currently have no solution, I think. Uh, I think it is valuable to try to then achieve, uh, you know, to, to actually succeed in that Turing test if, if there doesn't exist a trivial solution to it. Um, and I think it does have some value. There are certainly situations where, you know, humans can also do, you know, other things. So arguably you could say that if someone plays against AlphaGo and, but wasn't necessarily told if it's AlphaGo or not, like perhaps, uh, though actually kind of interestingly, some people have argued that it's using strategies that, uh, you know, the best AlphaGo players aren't necessarily considering naturally. But, uh, you know, you could argue that right now, if you played against AlphaGo, you would have a hard time determining that this isn't just some Go expert. At least many people wouldn't be able to, to say that. But of course, AlphaGo cannot, you know, doesn't really classify uh, images of, of natural, you know, natural images or it doesn't. Uh, dialogue with a person, uh, but still, I would certainly argue that you know, uh, act, trying to tackle that particular milestone uh, is useful in in our scientific endeavor towards you know uh, more and more intelligent machines. Isn't it fascinating that that Turing said that? Yeah. So, uh, assuming the listeners are familiar with it, it's basically can you tell if, if this is a machine or a person? You're talking to mm -hmm. over over a computer, and you know Turing said that if it um, if it can fool you thirty percent of the time, we have to say it's smart. And, mm -hmm. and you know the, the 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 first thing you say, well, why isn't it like fifty percent? Why isn't it kind of indistinguishable? And 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 so 
an answer to that would probably be something like, well, we're not, we're not saying that it's as smart as a human, but it's intelligent. You have to say it's intelligent if it can fool people regularly. But the interesting thing is that if it can ever fool people more than 50%, the, the, the only conclusion you can draw is it's better at being human than we are. Uh-huh, or uh-huh. or I, seeming human. That, that, well, definitely, I, that's a good point. So I, I, I definitely think that intelligence isn't like a sort of black or white you know, phenomenon in terms of, you know, it, something is intelligent or isn't. It's definitely a spectrum. Um, what it means for someone to like fool a human more than actual humans into thinking that they're human is, is an interesting thing to think about. Uh, I, uh, I guess I'm not sure we're really quite there yet. Uh, and if we were there, then, you know, this might just be um, sort of a uh, more like a, I would say a bug in the evaluation itself uh, in the sense that presumably much like we have, you know, now, you know, adversarial networks or adversarial examples. So, so we have methods that can sort of fool a particular test, I guess. Uh, well, this might be more of a reflection of that. Uh, but yeah, intelligence, I think, is a spectrum. And, and uh, I wouldn't be comfortable certainly to try to pin it down to a specific frontier that we or, or bear that we'd have to to reach before we can say we have achieved like actual AI. Well, to say we're not quite there yet, well, I mean, that is a, an exercise in understatement, right? Because I can't find a single one of these systems that, you know, that are trying to, that, um, that can answer the following question, oh, what's bigger, a nickel or the sun? And so it's like, I, <laughs> need, I need four seconds to instantly know. Yeah. And even the best contest mm-hmm. restrict the questions enormously. I mean, they, 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 they try to yeah. tilt everything in favor of the machine. The machine can't even, can't even put in a showing. What do you yeah. think that, what, so two questions, what do you infer from that? And two, uh, do you think that, well, I'll just start, I'll start with that. What do you infer from that, that we're so far away yeah. From that, from I, it's yeah, it's it's. Uh, I think that's a very good point because, um, well, there are now a lot of discussions about, and it's interesting. I think you know, things to talk about like how how quickly are we progressing towards something that would be you know indistinguishable from uh, human intelligence uh, uh, for any other like in a very complete Turing test type of meaning, and um, and I think that what you're getting to is there are a lot of, we're getting pretty good at a, now what seems to be a surprising number of individual tasks, but for something to solve all of them at once and be very flexible and capable in a more general way. Um, I think essentially your example kind of shows that potentially we're, we're quite far from that. And um, so I, I do find myself thinking about, okay, so I guess, how far are we, do we think? And often, actually, you know, if you talk to someone who isn't in machine learning or in AI, uh, that's often the question they ask. Like, how far are we from uh, AIs doing, you know, pretty much anything we're able to do? And, and it's a very difficult thing to predict. And so usually what I say is that I don't know because, you know, you would need to predict the future for that. Uh, but one bit of information that we, I feel we don't often look back about, uh, look back to is, if you look at some of the quotes of AI researchers when people were also kind of like now very excited about the 
prospects of AI, a lot of these quotes are actually similar to some of the things we hear today. And so this, uh, this and, and noticing that, you know, it's perhaps not that hard to think of a particular kind of reasoning task where we don't really have anything that would solve it that as easily as, as we might've thought. Um, I think it just suggests that we still have a fairly long way um, uh, in terms of, you know, a real general AI. Well, let's talk about that for just a second, because in, in a sense, if you ask a similar question, because you talked about the, you know, just now the pitfalls of predicting the future, but if I said, how long will it be before we get to Mars? I mean, that's, an, mm -hmm. that's a future question, but it's answerable. You could say, well, you know, rocket technology, you know, 2020 20 to 2040 or something like that. But if you ask people uh, who, are, who are in this field, at least tangentially in the field, um, I get answers between five and 500 years. <laughs> and so that implies to me that not only do we not know when we're going to do it, we really don't know how to build an AGI. And so that, I guess that's my question is, or twofold. One, why do you think there is that range? And two, do you think that when or whether or not the, you can predict the time, do you think we have all of the tools in our arsenal that we need to build an AGI? Like, do you believe that with sufficient mm -hmm. advances in AI, with uh, sufficient advances in algorithms, with sufficient advances in processors, with data collection, with learning more, um, you know, different approaches, better, like I said, better algorithms, do you think we are on a linear path to achieve an AGI, or is an AGI going to require some hitherto unimaginable uh, breakthrough that, and that's why you get five to 500 years, because that's the yeah. thing that's kind of the black swan of the, in the room. I do, I do, yeah, that is my suspicion that there are at least one if, and probably many technological breakthroughs that aren't just computers getting faster or collecting more data that is required. Um, one example, which I feel is not so much an issue with uh, compute power and much more an issue of, okay, we don't have the right procedure, we don't have the right algorithm, is for instance, being able to match how actually as humans, we're able to learn certain concepts with very little, you know, quote unquote data for, from or human experience. Uh, an example that's often given is the fact that if you show me a few pictures of an object, I will probably recognize that same object in many more pictures uh, just from a few, like perhaps even just one photograph of that object. Uh, if, you, if you show me a, a picture of a family member and you, see, you know, show me other pictures of, of your family, I will probably identify that person without you having to tell me more than once. So, um, and there are many other things that we're able to learn from actually very little feedback. And um, I don't think it's just a matter of throwing existing technology with more compute on more data. I, I do suspect that there's algorithmic um, components that are missing. One of them might be, and that's something I'm very interested in right now, is uh, learning to learn or meta-learning. So uh, designing algorithms that allow uh, um, essentially to produce learning algorithms from, from examples of tasks. And kind of more generally just having um, perhaps higher level perspective of what learning is and acknowledging that it, it, it works at various scales and there are a lot of different learning uh, procedures happening in parallel. 
uh, and in intricate ways. And so determining how those, you know, should be, these learning processes should act at, at various scales, I think is, for instance, probably a, a question we'll need to uh, tackle more and, and uh, you know, actually find a solution for. There, there are people who think that we're not going to build an AGI until we solve the, uh, until we understand consciousness. Consciousness is this unique ability we have to change focus and to observe the world a certain way and to experience this world a certain way that gives us these insights. So I will throw that to you. Do you, A, believe that consciousness is somehow key to human intelligence? And B, do you think we'll make a, um, a conscious computer? So, yeah, that's, that's a very interesting question. So I, I honestly don't, I haven't really wrapped my head around like, you know, what is consciousness relative to the concept of building an artificial intelligence. I, I, it's a, it's a very interesting conversation to have, but I really have a, I have kind of have no clue, no handle on how to think exactly about that. Uh, I would, I would say, however, that clearly notions of, uh, you know, uh, attention, for instance, being able to focus attention on various things or uh, adding an ability to seek information. Uh, those are clearly components for which uh, currently, I guess for attention, we have some fairly mature solutions that work in though perhaps somewhat restricted ways and not in a more general way. Information seeking, I think, is still like it's very much related to the notion of exploration and reinforcement learning. I think that's still a very big, you know, technical uh, um, challenge that we need to address. Um, and so some of these aspects about consciousness, I think, are kind of procedural, and it, it does make sense that uh, we will need to figure out some, you know, some algorithm to implement these or, or learn to e extract these behaviors from, from experience and from data. So you talked a little bit earlier about learning from just a little bit of data, that we're really good at that. And... Is that, do you think, an example of humans being good at unsupervised learning? Because obviously as kids, you, you know, this is a dog and this is a cat and that's supervised learning. But what you were talking about where now I can recognize it in low light, I can recognize it from behind, I can recognize it at a distance. Is that humans doing a kind of unsupervised learning? And maybe start off by just explaining the concept and the hope about unsupervised learning, that it takes us maybe out of the process. And then do you think humans are good at that? Mm -hmm. So, yes. Yeah. So um, I guess unsupervised learning is by definition um, something uh, that's not supervised learning. And it's kind of an extreme of, of not using supervised learning. So an example of that would be, uh, and this is something I sort of investigated uh, quite a bit when I did my PhD 10 years ago, which is to have a procedure, a learning algorithm that can, for instance, look at images of handwritten characters and be able to understand that each of these pixels in these images of characters are related, that they are higher level concepts that explain why uh, this is a handwritten digit. For instance, there's the concept of, of pen strokes. So, so a character is really a combination of, of pen, pen strokes. And uh, so unsupervised learning would try to, just from looking at images, from the uh, fact that there are correlations between these pixels, that they tend to look like something different than just a random image, and that pixels arrange themselves in a very specific way compared to any random combination of pixels, to try to 
to be able to extract these sort of higher level concepts like pen strokes and, and handwritten characters. And, you know, in a more complex natural scene, this would be identifying the different objects uh, without someone having to label each, uh, each object, because really what explains what I'm seeing is that there's a few different objects with a particular light uh, interacting with the scene uh, and so on. So, so that's something that I've looked at quite a bit. And I, I do think that, you know, uh, humans are doing some form of that, but also we're probably as, as, as infants, we're interacting with our world and we're exploring it and we're being curious. And that starts being something a bit further away from just pure unsupervised learning and a bit closer to things like reinforcement learning. Um, so this notion that I can actually manipulate my environment and from this I can learn about how, what are its properties? What are the factors of variations that characterize this, this environment? Um, and there's an even slightly more supervised learning type uh, uh, of learning that we see in, in ourselves in, as infants, say, that even is uh, not really captured by purely supervised learning, which is being able to change or to learn from feedback from another person. So we might imitate someone, but, uh, and, and that would be closer to supervised learning, but we might instead get feedback that's worded. So if, if my, a parent says, do this or don't do that, um, this isn't exactly an imitation. This is more like uh, a communication of how you should adjust your behavior. And this sort of form of more like weekly supervised learning. So if I, if I tell my kid to uh, uh, do his or her homework or uh, to, uh, if I give instructions how to solve a particular problem set, this isn't, a demonstration so this isn't supervised learning this is more like a yeah weak form of supervised learning which even then I think we uh, don't use as much in the known systems that work well currently that people are using in uh, you know object recognition systems or machine translation systems and so on and and so I believe that these various forms of learning that uh, are much less supervised than the you know common supervised learning is the direction of research that we still have uh, a lot of progress to make uh, uh, in. So earlier you were talking about meta-learning, which is learning how to learn. And mm -hmm. I think there's been a, a, a wide range of views about how artificial intelligence and an AGI might work. And, and on one side was an early hope that like the physical universe, which is governed by just very few laws, and magnetism, very few laws, uh, electricity, very few laws. We hoped that intelligence was governed by just a very few laws that we could learn. And then, mm -hmm. and then on the other extreme, you have, uh, you have people like uh, the late Marvin Minsky who, who really saw the brain as a hack of a couple of hundred, I mean, I guess you could say a couple of hundred narrow AIs that all come together and mm -hmm. give us, if not a general intelligence, at least a really good substitute for one. I guess a belief in meta-learning is a belief in the former case or something like it, that there is a way to learn how to learn. There's a way to build all those hacks. Would, would you agree? Do you think, do you think that? Yeah. So, but I think there's one, we can take one example that I think under a perhaps somewhat general definition of what learning to learn or meta-learning is, it's something that we could all agree exists, which is, uh, you know, 
as humans, we're the result of, of years of evolution. And evolution is a form of, of adaptation, I guess. Uh, and but then within our lifespan, each individual will also adapt to its, you know, specific human experience. And so you can think of, you know, evolution as being kind of like the meta learning to the learning that we do as uh, humans in our individual lives every day. Um, so, but then even in our own lives, I think there are clearly ways in which my brain is adapting as I'm growing older from, from a baby to an adult uh, that are not conscious. But there are ways in which I'm adapting in a rational way, in conscious ways, uh, which rely on the fact that my brain, you know, has adapted to be able to perceive my environment. They just, you know, my visual uh, uh, cortex just maturing. Um, so again, you know, there, there are sort of uh, multi-layers, multiple layers of learning that rely on each other. And so I think this is at a fairly high level, but I think in a meaningful way, a form of middle learning. So for that reason, I think that um, investigating how to, have uh, learning of learning systems uh, is um, that there is a process that's valuable here in informing how to have more intelligent agents and, and AIs. So there's a lot of fear wrapped up in the media coverage of artificial intelligence and not even getting into killer robots, just the effect that <laughs> it's going to have on, on jobs and employment. Do you, do you uh, do you share that, and uh, what is your prognosis for for the future? Is is AI in the end going to increase human productivity like all other technologies have done, or is AI something profoundly different that's going to um, mm -hmm. harm humans? Yeah, I that's a good question. So I what I can say is that I'm motivated by, and, and what makes me excited about AI is that I see it as an opportunity of, of automating parts of my day-to-day -day life, which I would rather be automated so I can, you know, spend my life doing more creative things or the things that I'm more passionate about or more interested in. And so, and I think largely because of that, I, I see AI as a wonderful piece of technology for, for humanity. Uh, you know, I see benefits in terms of, you know, better machine translation, which will connect better the different parts of the world and, and allow us to travel and learn about uh, other cultures or how we can automate the work of certain uh, health workers so that they can spend more time on the harder cases that probably don't receive as much attention as they should. Um, so for that reason, I, I and because I'm personally motivated in automating these aspects of life, which we would want to see automated, I am fairly optimistic about the prospects for, for you know, our society to have more AI. Um, and, you know, when, potentially when it comes to jobs, we can even imagine uh, automating our ability to, to, you know, progress professionally. Uh, definitely, there's a lot of opportunities in automating part of the process of learning in a course. We now have many courses online. Uh, even myself, when I was teaching, I was putting a lot of material on, on YouTube to allow for people to learn. Like essentially, I had identified that the day-to-day -day teaching that I was doing in my job was very repetitive. It was something that I could record once and for all 
and instead focus my attention on spending time with the students and making sure that each individual student uh, solves its own misunderstanding about the topic. Because you know, my my mental model of the students in general is that it's oft often unpredictable how they will misunderstand the particular aspect of of you know the course. And so you actually want to spend some uh, time interacting with that student, and and you want to do that for with as many students as possible. So I think um, that's an example where we can think of automating particular aspects of, say, education, so as to support our uh, ability to have everyone be educated and be able to have a meaningful uh, professional life. So I'm overall optimistic, uh, and I'm, I'm largely because of uh, you know the way I see myself using AI and developing AI in the future. Uh, anybody who's listened to many episodes of the show will know I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that position. And I, I think it's easy to point to history and say, you know, in the last 250 years, unemployment, other than the depression, which wasn't caused by technology, obviously, unemployment's been between five and nine percent without fail. And yet we've had incredibly disruptive uh, technologies like the mechanization of industry, the replacement of animal power with human power, electrification, and so forth. So I don't, I think that there's a and in every case, humans have used those technologies to increase their own productivity and therefore their incomes. And that is the entire story of a rising standard of living for everybody, at least in the Western world. But I would be remiss mm -hmm. not, to, um, not to make the other case, which is um, that there's a, there might be a point, an escape velocity, where a machine can learn a new job faster than a human. And that at that point, at that magic moment, every new job, everything we create, a machine would learn it faster than a human, a machine would do it, a machine would do it, a machine would do it. In such that literally everything, everything from, you know, Michael Crichton down to uh, everybody but finds themselves replaced. Is that possible? And, and if that really happened, would that be a bad thing? So, yeah, that... It's a very good question, I think, for society in general. I, I am, um, I maybe that's because I'm. My day to day is about identifying what are the current challenges and making progress in AI. Because I see, and I guess we've touched that a little bit earlier, but I see that there are still many scientific challenges. That it's just, it doesn't necessarily seem that it's just a matter of making computers faster and collecting more data. Uh, because I see these many challenges and because I've, I, I've seen that as a scientific community in previous years, we have been wrong about and we have been overly optimistic. I tend to err on the side of less gloomy and, and that, you know, is a bit more conservative in how quickly we'll go there if we ever get there. Um, but and then in terms of what it means for society, if, if, if that was to ever happen, that we can automate essentially most things. Um, I think that uh, I unfortunately feel ill-equipped as a, you know, non-economist to be able to, you know, really have a meaningful opinion about this. But I do think it's good that we have a dialogue about it, you know, as long as it's grounded in facts, which is why it's a difficult question to discuss, because we're talking about a hypothetical future that might not exist before a very long time. Uh, but as long as we have otherwise, like, a, you know, rational discussion about what might happen, I think it's, you know, I don't see a reason not 
not to have that, that discussion. It's funny, probably the truest thing that I've learned from doing all of these chats is that there is a direct uh, correlation between how much you code and how far away you think an AGI is. And <laughs> I would even go further to say that the longer you have code, the, coded, the further away you think it is. Like, you know, <laughs> people who've, who've kind of new at it are like, yeah, we'll knock this out. And then people who have been at it, and then the people who think it's going to happen really quickly are generally more mm -hmm. um, observers. So I want to throw a philosophy um, thought experiment to you, actually. I don't want to call it sure. philosophy. A thought experiment at you that, um, I haven't presented anybody on, on the show yet, and it's by uh, a man named Frank Jackson, and it's um, the problem of Mary. And the, the problem goes like this: There's um, this hypothetical person, Mary, and Mary is uh, knows everything in the world about color. Everything. I mean, that's an understatement. She has a godlike understanding of color. Uh, mm -hmm. Everything down to the basic most minute detail of light and neurons and everything. And the, the, the rub is that she lives in a room that she's never left and everything she's seen is black and white. And one day she goes outside and she sees red for the first time. And the question is, does she learn anything new when that happens that she didn't know before? You have an initial reaction so, to that? So my initial reaction is that being colorblind, I might be ill-equipped to answer that question. Uh, uh, but it's, it's seriously, uh, um, so, so she has a perfect understanding of color, but just restating the situation, but she has only seen black and, in black and white? Correct. I and mean, then one day she sees color. And did she learn anything new about <laughs> color? Um, well... I mean, by definition of what understanding means, uh, I would think that she wouldn't learn anything about color. So in other words, in that view... About red, specifically. Yeah. Right. Um, that, is, that is probably the, 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 like the consistent answer, but it's one that is intuitively unsatisfying to many people. The idea... Mm -hmm. and, and the question is trying to get at is experiencing something different than knowing something. And mm -hmm. if, in mm -hmm. fact, it is different, then our challenge in building, we, we have to build a machine that can experience things for it to truly be intelligent, as opposed mm -hmm. to just to know something. And to, to experience things means you return to this thorny issue of, of consciousness, you know, our most singular, our, you know, we are, we are not only the, the most intelligent creature on the planet, but we're arguably the most conscious and that those two things somehow are tied together. And, and I just keep mm -hmm. returning to that because it, it implies maybe you can write all the code in the world and until the machine can experience something. But, but the way you just answered the question was no, that if you know everything, experiencing adds nothing. So within that larger unless, context. Unless that, uh, I, I, guess, I guess unless that experience would somehow contradict what you know about the world, um, I, I would think that it wouldn't affect it. And this is partly, I think, you know, one challenge about developing AI as we move forward. A lot of the um, AIs that we've successfully developed that have to do with, you know, performing a series of actions, uh, like playing Go, for instance, have really been developed in the simulated environment. 
so in this case, you know, for a computer game, it's pretty easy, or sorry, a, a board game, it's pretty easy to simulate it on a computer because you can literally write all the rules of the game. Um, so you can put them in the computer and simulate it. Uh, but for an experience such as being in the real world and manipulating objects, um, as long as that ex simulated experience isn't exactly what the experience is in the real world of touching real objects, uh, I think we will face a challenge of being able to transfer, you know, any any kind of intelligence that we uh, simulate, you know, in, in simulation uh, that we that we grow in simulations and transfer it to real world. And that's definitely also, and this partly relates, you know, to uh, our inability of having algorithms that learn rapidly, uh, and that instead they require, you know, millions of repetitions or examples to really be close to what humans can do. Um, you know, we'd imagine, you know, having a robot going through, uh, uh, you know, millions of, of labeled examples from someone manipulating that robot and showing exactly how to do everything. Um, and, you know, that robot might essentially learn too quickly, uh, too, too slowly to really learn any meaningful behavior in a reasonable amount of time. So do you, you use the word transfer three or four times there. Do you think that transfer learning, this idea that, Humans are really good at taking what we know in one domain space and applying it in another. You know, you walk around <laughs> one big city and go into a different big city and you kind of map things. Yeah. Uh, is that a useful thing to work on in artificial intelligence? Uh, and absolutely. So, yeah. What's that? I, I, think, I think it's uh, absolutely. I think, uh, in fact, we're seeing that how uh, all the success that have been enabled by the ImageNet data set and the competitions, uh, that has... Uh, that is, so it turns out if you train an object recognition system uh, on this large image net data set that uh, really is responsible for the revolution of deep neural nets and convolutional neural nets in the field of computer vision, uh, it so turns out that these models trained on that source of data could transfer really well to a surprising number of tasks. And that has very much enabled, you know, a kind of a revolution in computer vision. And I think but it's a fairly simple type of transfer. And I think there are more subtle ways of transferring where you need to take what you knew before, but slightly adjust it. Um, how to do that exactly without not forgetting what you learned before. Um, so understanding how these different mechanisms need to work together to be able to perform a form of, of, of lifelong learning, of being able to accumulate one task after another and learning each new task with less and less experience uh, it's something I think currently we're not doing as well as, as we need to. What keeps you up at night? Like, what do you lay awake at night? Like, you, you, you meet an, a genie, you rub the bottle, and the genie comes out and says, I will, you know, exp I'd give you perfect understanding of something. Like, what do you wrestle with that, that maybe you can phrase in a way that uh, would, would be um, useful to the, to the listeners? Uh -huh. Well, let's see. That's a very good question. Um, I do, I mean, definitely in my daily research, um, how are we able to accumulate knowledge and how would a machine accumulate knowledge in a very long period uh, and, and learn a sequence of, of tasks and abilities um, in a sequence uh, cumulatively? Um, I think it's something that currently I think a whole lot about. And this has led me to think about learning to learn because I suspect that there are ideas and effectively 
once you have to learn one ability after the other, after the other, that process of doing this uh, and doing it better is perhaps, um, the fact that we do it better is perhaps because we are learning how to learn each task also, that there's this other scale of learning that is going on. And how to do this exactly, I don't quite know. And, and, and that's, I mean, knowing this, I think would be a, a pretty big, spe uh, big step in our field. So I, I have three final questions, if I could. Um, you're, you're in Canada, correct? Yes. And there's uh, a I lot. Currently, as, it turns out, as, as it turns out, I'm currently, uh, I'm currently still in the U.S. because my, so I have four kids. Two of them are in school. So uh, I wanted them to finish their school year before we moved. Uh, but the plan is for me to go to Montreal, yes. I noticed, I mean, there's a lot of AI activity in Canada. Do you, do you I mean, a lot of, of leading research. Do you think that that uh, is, well, how did that come about? Was that a deliberate decision or just a, a kind of a coincidence that different universities and businesses uh, decided I, to go into that? I can, I, yeah, if I speak for Montreal specifically, very clearly at the source of it is Yashua Benjo uh, deciding to stay in Montreal, uh, staying in academia, and then continue training uh, many students, gathering other researchers that is uh, also in his group and also training uh, more PhDs in the field that uh, doesn't have as much talent as is needed. Uh, I, I think this is essentially the, the, the source of it. And then... Uh, my second to the last question is, what about science fiction? Do you, do you enjoy it in any form like movies or TV or books or anything like that? And if so, does any of it, do you look at it and think, ah, the future could happen that way? Um, so I definitely used to be more into science fiction. Uh, now, maybe due to having kids, I, I watch maybe more Disney movies than I watch science fiction. Uh, I... And I find it interesting in a sense. I, it's actually a good question. I'm realizing I haven't watched a sci-fi movie for a bit, but, but it would be interesting now that I've, you know, actually been in this field for a while uh, to sort of confront my vision of it from what artists, uh, how artists potentially see AI, maybe not seriously, maybe more as a, you know, a lot of, you know, art is essentially, uh, philosophy around what could happen or, or at least, you know, pro projecting a potential future and seeing how we feel about it. And, uh, and for that person, I'm now tempted to sort of, you know, revisit some, either some classics or, or seeing, you know, what are recent uh, sci-fi movies. So I, I said only one more question. So I've got to combine two into one to stick with that. What are you <laughs> working on? And, and if a listener is uh, going into college or is presently in college, and wants to, to get into artificial intelligence in a way that uh, is really relevant. Like, what would be the leading edge that you would say somebody entering the field now would do well to invest time in? So first you, and then mm -hmm. what would you recommend for uh, the next mm -hmm. generation of AI researchers? Yeah, um, uh, as I mentioned, perhaps not so surprisingly, I am very much interested in learning to learn and metal learning. I've, I've started publishing on the subject and I, uh, still very much thinking around, you know, various new ideas for uh, of meta learning approaches, um, and also uh, learning from yeah weaker signals than in the supervised learning setting. 
such as learning from worded feedback from a person is, is, is something I haven't quite started working on specifically, but I'm thinking a whole lot about these days. Um, and in terms of, you know, so perhaps those are like directions that I would, you know, definitely encourage other young researchers to think about and study and, and research. Um, and in terms of, you know, advice, well, I'm obviously, again, biased, definitely being in Montreal for studying deep learning and AI currently is a very, very, I think, rich and great experience. Uh, there's a lot of people to talk to, to interact with. Uh, not just uh, in academia, but now much more in industry, such as ourselves at Google and other places. Um, and also be very, being very active online. Uh, on Twitter, there's not a very, very rich uh, community of people sharing the work of others and discussing the latest results. I think a lot of the field is moving very fast, and in large part it's because the deep learning community has been very open about sharing its latest results, and also um, sharing, making the discussion open about what's going on. So being connected, uh, whether it be on, on Twitter or other uh, uh, social networks, uh, and, and, and yeah, reading, reading papers, you know, um, looking at what comes up on archive and engaging in the global conversation. All right. Well, that's a, a great place to end. I want to thank you so much. This has been a fascinating hour and I uh, would love to have you come back and talk about your other work in the future if you'd be up for it. Of course. Yeah. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, I host another podcast about artificial intelligence. It's a daily podcast called The AI Minute. And every day it's a minute or two of reflections about artificial intelligence. It's available wherever you find your podcasts of choice. But in addition, it's an Alexa skill, so it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device. Yes.